Hello. Robert Calderisi, a 1968 Quebec Rhodes Scholar, joined the World Bank in Washington, D.C., where he was Division Chief for Indonesia and the South Pacific, head of the Regional Mission in West Africa, International Spokesman on Africa, and Country Director for Central Africa. Now that's quite a resume. Robert joins me today to discuss his critically acclaimed book, The Trouble with Africa, Why Foreign Aid Isn't Working, chosen by The Economist magazine as one of the best books of 2006, and his latest book, Cecil Rhodes and Other Statues, Dealing Plainly with the Past, released only a few days ago. So Robert Calderisi, after all that, welcome to Conversations with Peter Wood. Thank you, Peter. Good to be with you. Robert, we'll get to your latest book, Cecil Rhodes and Other Statues, in a minute, because I think we should we should start with The Trouble with Africa. Although written in 2006, it's arguably more relevant now than ever. You only have to look at what's going on in South Africa right now. So, Robert, let's get straight to it. According to a 2021 Global Finance magazine article, the top 10 poorest countries in the world are all in Africa. And despite the G8 countries pledging total debt cancellation, very little has happened. According to one article written by you, if I'm not mistaken, Africa has received some 600 billion US dollars since the 1960s. In fact, an OECD report states that it's closer to 2.6 trillion US dollars. So what went wrong? Is it all down to corruption or are there other factors that need to be considered? Well, Peter, um, I think ironically, that despite all the aid that Africa has received, some of the basic constraints to African development have never gone away uh, since independence, uh, such as uh, small internal markets, uh, a shortage of basic utilities like uh, electricity, a lack of regional infrastructure, um, and a late start in international markets. Um, uh, and the, the Africa has tried after a period of going backwards to do some catching up with Asia and Latin America, but it just hasn't been possible. And of course, because of its internal weaknesses, Africa has had a hard time adjusting to the shocks of the last 15 years, the 2008 financial crisis, and of course, uh, the pandemic. Um, but hard as it is to measure, Africa was beginning to make some progress um, until the United States started scrambling international supply lines and uh, with you know, arbitrary tariffs and import barriers during the Trump administration. And um, uh, the World Bank estimates that uh, about 40 million Africans were lifted out of poverty uh, in the five years uh, before the pandemic, but you have to think of that number, 40 million people out of poverty in a continent which of a billion people, uh, half of whom are going to be under 25 by the year 2050. So the progress that has been made and has now been reversed by the pandemic and these trade uh, troubles has been very slight. I think that's the, that's the, the most worrying thing about Africa. I mean, in just 30 years, aid has worked elsewhere in, in the world. Uh, in just 
Injust, yeah. In in his in the wide sweep of history, 30 years is not a very long time. And in that period, uh, between 1982 and 2012, East Asia reduced the proportion of re extremely poor people uh, in its in the region from 81 percent of the population to just 13 percent. A lot of that is China, but still there are other countries in East Asia that made that kind of progress. Uh, South Asia went from 60 percent of really, really poor people to 40%. But in Africa during that period, it was about the same, 50%, 49%. So the troubles are, are really deep and longstanding. Corruption isn't the um, only reason. And uh, I don't think African countries are any more corrupt than uh, others in the world. It's just that the economic surplus that corruption feeds, uh, draws from is much smaller in Africa. And, um, and so there's less available for investment and public investment and uh, social safety nets in individual countries. And it also affects uh, poor people directly who are affected, uh, you know, harassed and, uh, uh, and discouraged by, by uh, dishonest leaders all around them. And of course, as you mentioned, uh, in South Africa, it, which was once in a universe of its own compared with the rest of Africa is uh, showing how a, a greedy elite and convenient uh, connections or crony capitalism and just poor management have driven people to despair. And you and I would also be in despair in their situation because uh, real per capita income in South Africa has been dropping uh, steadily for the last seven years. And there are more than 11 million unemployed in South Africa. And if you include their dependents, uh, you know, that's about 30 million people or half the population uh, of, of the country. Um, I think just as bad as corruption is just a lack of faith in the future. And, you know, Africans were supposed to benefit from a demographic transition or even dividend because of how many uh, of uh, the population were in fact very young. But um, it's clear that uh, population is now a burden, uh, not really uh, an opportunity. And population growth rates in Africa are still among the highest uh, in the world. Is the situation hopeless? I don't think so. But, you know, one has to be extremely uh, uh, idealistic to think that uh, something's going to happen soon. I mean, there's still tremendous um, talent and energy and idealism in Africa. And if governments focused on their principal responsibilities, which is you know, to ensure personal security and enforce the, the rule of law and invest in things which benefit everyone, not just a few, so a lot of that talent would be uh, released. But is it fair to say that Africans appear to accept bad governance? I mean, surely it's not as simple as that. Well, no, I mean, I, I think, um, I mean, there are some cultural uh, issues. There's a, in Africa, as there was in Italy or Spain in the 1950s and 60s, uh, uh, undue respect <laughs> for the uh, for the elderly, being on the elderly side myself, I, I obviously I enjoy that aspect of African culture. But 
when it comes to politics, it means that respect for the the elderly and uh, um, uh, and and the established means there's very little circulation of talent in African political uh, systems. Uh, it astonishes me that that uh, 30 years after I left the Ivory Coast, the major politicians are still the same who were in office or in competition when I was there. Um, so it's it, it's uh, it, it's um, the, the, the political. Uh, systems in Africa certainly have not given people any room for optimism about change. And they've never lived, most Africans have never lived under a good government. So they don't really know what they're missing. They're, they expect that this is, is, is normal. Of course it isn't. Um, so it, it's, um, uh, it, it's uh, deeply upsetting to anyone who's spent uh, their careers like me, uh, believing that uh, change will happen. And um, it's been very slow coming. But you've been quoted as saying that despite Africa appearing to be constantly at war or some form of conflict, in reality, it's much more peaceful than we would otherwise be led to believe. I mean, do you still stand by that remark? Well, yeah, I think the, uh, you know, the worst period of civil conflict in uh, Africa was in the, you know, the, the 90s and the beginning of the 21st century. I say that from because many Africans have told me that, including African expatriates who've gone back home, whether they're working at the World Bank or in Wall Street in New York or lawyers in in London. When they go home, they go back to their village. Um, very few Westerners have that uh, continued connection with the you know with their. Uh, with their origins and their and their and their family communities, and uh, there, yes, uh, there is a there, there there is a space for for expression and um, uh, and connection with uh, the community, which uh, actually um, uh, we don't have all that widely in the West. So yes, I think I, I say that because it's f far too easy to to dismiss Africa as a, uh, a place of civil conflict and tribalism and yes, corruption. Uh, but I think there are, uh, there are the, the elements of, um, that are, are uh, acting as a break on African development is not violence, uh, it's, um, uh, or tribalism. Although ethnic differences in Africa are a real issue. Mm. Um, even racism is an issue within Africa among uh, African peoples. But um, it's, it's, it's not as important as the failure of politicians to, to look beyond their clan or their own group and, and, and think of a, of a national interest rather than just a community one. And you, you also said that it's a failure within the law courts. I mean, corruption within the law is far more damaging than a corrupt government, you said. Of course, as you will know, from your time in Indonesia, corrupt judiciary isn't just an African issue. No, definitely not. But it is, the, it is probably the most corrosive part of it because uh, the judicial system, after all, is meant to be like a free press, is meant to be the ultimate defense uh, against such uh, abuses. And so when the protectors, uh, whether they are police or judges, are themselves twisted uh, in their judgments and of course uh, uh, there's, there's, there's very little solution 
open to the people uh, seeking some kind of recourse. Um, I remember telling, uh, I used to surprise audiences in Africa when I would explain that in Chad, um, farmers would not fertilize their, their uh, sorghum fields uh, if they were visible from the road. Um, they might fertilize them further away because if it grew too high, army vehicles would stop and steal the crop. Now, you know, imagine that. I mean, what kind of inducement is that to increasing your production and, and income when what your, your first line of consideration is protecting it from the forces of order? Mm. I mean, South Africa was a model country, but as we speak, the former president Zuma is in jail and the population are rioting. This isn't just political though, it's driven by poverty. So Robert, if money isn't the answer, then what is the alternative? Because it's not clear that the money is not filtering down to the man in the street. You actually point out in the book that the average African country's economy is the same as the typical outer suburb for an American city. Well, yeah, well, I think the, 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 the failure of uh, foreign aid in Africa until now has, all, has been essentially a, a failure of outlook on the part of those giving it and on the part of those receiving it. Now, people often have said, you know, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund were part of the problem. I thought that's just too easy um, uh, an excuse. Um, the, the World Bank and occasionally the IMF were trying to do the right thing. But, um, uh, but in a sense, they were making the same mistake as the whole of the liberal international order and other Western aid agencies. And that was to, if they, we, to be even more direct about it, we failed to see that propping up governments that merely paid lip service to economic rationality and signing agreements put before them on you know, conference tables without any intention of implementing them will only make things worse. And uh, you know, we were all rather gullible and Pollyanna-ish uh, for decades. And we were reluctant to change course once the, the hard evidence was in. Uh, Aid should have been treated as seriously as any other hard-headed investment. Instead, um, many Africans and uh, sympathetic Westerners regarded it as some kind of right, as a kind of gifts to be dispersed rather than uh, a real um, contribution to making uh, concrete things and you know, human services uh, work better. Um, so it, it's, um, it, it is, a, I think it was a, we, we tried very hard to be understanding and we missed the most obvious thing in front of our eyes, which was that African governments didn't care as much as Western governments about, uh, about um, reducing poverty. Many African leaders just believed poverty to be something that as normal as the sunshine or the rain, not something really that you could do anything about. But they were certainly prepared to accept uh, large amounts of money from uh, the West in order to uh, do what they were being bribed to do. Whereas, you know, in 
In the rest of the, of the world, Latin America, South Asia, East Asia, governments used foreign aid uh, to serve their own um, purposes. Uh, they used it strategically. They weren't being browbeaten into doing the right thing. They were going in the right directions and, and they used institutions like the bank to, to um, um, move in their own direction. Indonesia is a perfect example of that. Uh, you know, during the same 20 years, from 1970 to 1990, that uh, Africa was losing um, uh, half of its export markets uh, to other developing countries. Uh, Indonesia reduced uh, the number of extreme poor from uh, 60% to 20% of the population. It's extraordinary because Indonesia was not one of those East Asian tigers. It was more like an African quote unquote case where uh, an awful lot of money went into technical assistance and management help, uh, not just into physical investment, but they were doing all the right things. I mean, they were investing in, in you know, high producing varieties of rice. They were doing um, uh, uh, rural infrastructure rather than the big urban uh, infrastructure. They were fu funding family planning, which was a rather delicate subject in a Muslim country, um, and adult education, and things like that, which, um, which are essential uh, to, to proper development, to balanced uh, development. I looked at the, the, uh, the latest Human Development Index results for last year. They came out in December of 2020. This is a, a gauge of progress which the United Nations Development Program uh, maintains. And, um, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a better measure of progress in society than economic growth rates because growth rates don't really tell you very much um, most of the time. It, it's a measure of standard of living, um, health and, you know, longevity and also access to knowledge. And um, only one African country, Mauritius, is ranked as having very high human development. Uh, Botswana, South Africa, the Seychelles, and Gabon had quote unquote high human development. Um, a few other countries like Ghana, Kenya, Zambia, surprisingly Zimbabwe uh, had medium uh, human development, again, by their measures, but most African countries, including large ones like uh, Nigeria, Ethiopia, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Tanzania, and even Rwanda had low human development. So Africa as a whole and, and, and its individual parts still has a long way to go to satisfy the needs of their people. Forget what foreign investors or aid donors want, uh, it's what their people want that's, uh, that they, they should be heeding. Mm, well, it's a, obviously a problem that's going to keep on going and going. It's the gift that keeps on giving. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, we have a lot to get on with. And I really want to discuss your latest book, Hot Off the Press, available globally this week. It's an extremely topical and very divisive issue. Cecil Rhodes and other statues. Now, as everyone knows, statues are tumbling everywhere right now. It's a topic that's dividing friends and families. I recently interviewed Duncan Clark about his book, Rhodes Ghost, and I do believe 
Duncan made, made a very good argument for Cecil Rhodes. So can you please tell us about your book? Your timing is extremely impressive, I must say. A statue of Queen Victoria has just been torn down in Canada. And then, of course, there's the issue with Rhodes. Yeah, I'm, as a Canadian, of course, I'm particularly horrified by the latter. Not only was Queen Victoria toppled, but a smaller statue nearby to our present monarch was also removed. And it's just an example of, of um, uh, people acting on the basis of uh, fra fragmentary information and you know the latest posting on social media. I became interested in writing a book about roads back in 2015-16 when the students at the University of Cape Town in South Africa insisted that his statue be taken down and then this movement spread to Oxford and people were using phrases like mass murderer and genocidaire and uh, uh, of course imperialist um, and, and most surprising to me was white supremacist. And um, I said to myself, I was astonished because having read a little bit about Rhodes over the years, I was wondering what I had missed. People were comparing him to Hitler uh, and Stalin. And so I was in the middle of another book project at the, at the time and I couldn't get to it immediately, but I thought I must really do some research and look at the full story. I did, actually I did worry for a while that perhaps I'd missed the boat that uh, you know, people, that the subject had died down a bit. And then of course, um, uh, George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis in May of last year and, and the Black Lives Matter movement was revived. And I was in utter admiration of the, you know, tens of millions of Americans who were in the streets uh, uh, fighting against uh, racial, uh, oppression, but also police violence. But of course, then the, the issue of statues came back to the fore. And of course, many more, many more statues have come down. Rightly, in some cases, a little quiotically, I think, uh, in others. But, you know, I was, uh, I was surprised by the, the, the language being used, because of course, uh, I knew, like most Rhodes scholars, that um, uh, Rhodes had been controversial in his, in his own day. Uh, but but he was he was controversial for two reasons back then. One was that um, he swindled the Endebeli people uh, out of land by telling them that he was interested in prospecting for minerals, and um, and and uh, and of course he had to resign as prime minister of the Cape Colony because he'd planned the invasion of a neighboring uh, Afrikaner state, the Transvaal, uh, in secret. Now, those defending him now will say that the Ndebele themselves had stolen that land 50 years before and with a lot more bloodshed than Rhodes and his people were ever guilty of, and that the so-called Jameson raid was well-intended. Uh, and it was called off at the last moment uh, by, by Rhodes. But neither of these defenses, I think, holds much water now because deceit is deceit regardless of the details. And uh, while it allowed roads to add three quarters of a million square miles to the British empire, it only made him glorious in the eyes of those who felt it was their right to occupy other people's lands, especially if those people looked different 
from themselves. Of course, he also clothed his dishonesty in the language of duty, uh, a civilizing mission, as he called it, and the march of progress. But many of today's criticisms are as shaky as some of the defenses that have been made uh, of the man. Um, there are, um, take the, the, the idea of being a white supremacist. Um, there are many ways to describe Rhodes's attitudes to race, but I think paternalistic is more accurate than white supremacist. Um, he regarded the English race, not as in, in inverted commas, because of course we wouldn't use that phrase now, uh, not whites in general as superior. And it wasn't because of any, they had better chromosomes than other races, but because the English had been exposed to a favorable history, including 400 years of Roman occupation in his view. And so he, he saw English culture, uh, upbringing and values uh, being a benefit, a benefit to other people. And he genuinely believed that spreading them was, was helpful. He didn't, uh, he wasn't an imperialist for commercial reasons. In fact, uh, he, he'd already made his fortune in the diamond and gold mines of South Africa before he ever set foot in the central uh, Africa. Um, he, he described uh, Africans as children, which is of course mortifying to us now, but he meant it literally. He, 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 he meant that with proper opportunities, education, uh, example, they would, uh, they would assume increasing responsibility in society. And this was at a time when many people around him regarded Africans as uh, subhuman. Um, on, more, on more than one occasion, uh, he said, I do not believe that the Africans are different from ourselves. And then, of course, in a life recorded in almost exhausting detail, there is no trace of Rhodes treating anybody differently because of the color of their skin. Now, he was capable of anger and strong language in, in, in you know, circumstances of war, but when you look for the evidence of being a white supremacist, you can't find it, not in the current sense of the word. As for wanting to kill people, um, quite the contrary, in, you know, in, in Canada at about the same time, uh, Sir John A. Macdonald, our first prime minister, was used famine as a weapon against the, the first peoples on the plains and to, to lure them into reserves where they would be given food and clear it out of their land so he could build a railway across the country. Um, in 1896, after the first Ndebele uprising against uh, uh, British rule, cattle disease had wiped out the herds of the Ndebele, and, and Rhodes took six million pounds in current value out of his own pockets to buy corn for the Ndebele people. Uh, he spent two months in the, in the countryside in that year, negotiating peace with the Ndebele leaders uh, when the British Imperial Army wanted to sort of carry on a fairly bloody campaign against uh, the rebels. So there's a lot in Rhodes's life uh, that, that uh, should complicate one's understanding of him and how we describe him. And of course, his generosity is remarkable. I mean, he didn't just think of giving his fortune to 
education and the Rhodes scholarships at the end of his life, <clears throat> the whole of his life he was he was saw his own um, progress, his own earnings as a way of contributing to closer uh, cooperation between the the powerful nations of the world, the British Empire, the the American Republic, and then laterally the the German Empire. To sort of uh, thinking that if they if young people from these three political entities could be um, uh, inspired to become close through uh, common education, uh, that uh, it, it would be a contribution to perpetual peace and uh, prosperity. So, and he was helping people even when he had very little money. Um, it, was, it was in his nature. So he, he's a much more interesting man than, um, than the critics uh, allow. And I think it's a good example of, of how hearsay sometimes um, uh, displaces history and that we should be careful about being dismissive of uh, large some, and sometimes controversial characters like Rhodes. Now I've said his story also in the, the larger debate about what to do with, uh, with, with statues uh, in general, because it's ultimately the more important part of this. Um, I argue that while it's a little, it's delicate to talk about this at the moment because of how systemic racism still is in the world, in the West, in the East, in the North and the South, there's nothing white and black, you know, white about this. All, as I said, I mean, even Africans themselves are, are, are blinded by ethnic and even color uh, differences. But I, um, I, I suggest that you know, we, we, have, we, we can learn some lessons about uh, how we deal with controversial figures. And I, I set out about, you know, uh, uh, 12 little rules in the book that uh, makes make sense. One, of, The first one of which is uh, try a little humility. Um, we, we tend to think that we're the wisest generation, all generations feel that way, that we're somehow the wisest and most sophisticated people to have come along in human history. But a hundred years from now, people will have trouble uh, understanding that uh, you know we kill 10 billion animals a year just in North America for food, and that we use plastics long after we knew how damaging they were uh, to the environment. Uh, secondly, I think we should uh, defer uh, irreversible decisions, you know, for two or three years about monuments until the public mood has settled down. Um, it was Afrikaner students who first wanted to tear down the statue of Rhodes on the UCT campus uh, in Cape Town back in the 50s, because of course they associated Rhodes uh, uh, with uh, having been responsible for the South African War or the Anglo Second Anglo-Boer War in 1899-1902. There too, I think there's been, it's, it's just too easy to accuse them of that. But anyway, their, their anger past, uh, I think we should put up more statues rather than take ones down just to sort of round out the story uh, about other characters in, and, and players in, you know, in these periods. I think we have to consult widely. Um, not everybody had the same idea about what a statue should be. And often it's a very small minority who want something take, torn down, but they're also among the most 
informed and idealistic people. So I think they should be taken seriously, but they don't have the right to point fingers and take you know, matters into their own hands. Um, I think we have to consider how substantial or immediate the harm is from these statues. Everybody understands why the statue of Saddam Hussein was torn down in Baghdad in March of 2003 after the American uh, invasion, but there aren't going to be very many people in Rome who will march to tear down the statues of Nero, who was a really terrible man. And somewhere in between, there are thousands of representations of famous, often powerful people who, you know, somebody will find a reason to be uh, unhappy about. Um, I think one can, you know, captioning is, is important. Uh, in 18 months ago, I visited the cottage at Musenberg outside Cape Town where Rhodes died. And there were some marvelous um, uh, display boards about him using language I would not have expected in a place which, if there is a place anywhere in the world, it was like a temple to the man. And um, uh, it, uh, it was, um, uh, for example, I remember reading that um, power, the way it tends to do, went to Rhodes's head, according to these panels. Uh, the patient negotiator became impatient, then seen as a forceful developer, now more than as a ruthless land grabber. The, em the emphasis shifted from the romance and benefits of empire to the negative and domineering aspects, racial arrogance, exploitation, the hubris of pride that preceded a fall, unquote. I mean, the people preparing those displays uh, had some gumption, I think. Uh, and I think they also knew that um, balance in presentation is much better than bedtime stories. And I think it, it's important that, that in other contexts that we try to strike that kind of balance. Um, and I think we have to learn from controversy uh, as the South Africans have tried to do in setting out some rules about how to deal with, with um, monuments. And I think also we have to be honest. Um, it'd be far better for the Rhodes Trust to sell Rhodes House in Oxford uh, and move into a faceless office block somewhere rather than give it a new name and pretend that it wasn't put up uh, to uh, honor and yes, glorify a flawed human being. I think we, we it's it much better to sort of own the, the, the facts rather than try to rainbow brush uh, the, the facts in, to suit you know, a, a current uh, audience and so on. So I, I, as, you can, as you can tell, I'm a little, I, I'm, I feel very strongly about the subject, not just because uh, a lot of the good roads did has been uh, overshadowed by the, the controversy, but because as a student of history from the beginning, I think it's extremely important that we be careful about uh, looking at the facts and um, in interpreting them um, uh, generously, I guess, uh, rather than um, mendaciously. Um, I think uh, 
re reasonable people looking at the same facts can come to very different conclusions about roads. And those conclusions are, you know, to me, equally valid, provided one's looking at, you know, beginning from the same set of, of, of facts and information about the man. And so as a, it's, so the, the book is meant to sort of encourage a, a more, uh, a similar approach to other people as diverse as, as Robert E. Lee, the Confederate general in the United States, Sir John A. MacDonald, whom I mentioned earlier in Canada, our first prime minister, and even Mahatma Gandhi, who is controversial in Africa because of uh, his uh, disparaging remarks about Africans when he lived there. Well, um, st statues symbolize who we are, but historian Simon Sharma famously said, statues are not history, rather it's the opposite. History is argument, statues brook none. Well, I think um, histories, I mean, monuments are also artifacts, historical artifacts. And what we do with them is, I think, similar to what we do with books. Um, unless a statue has been put up recently by some conniving evil people to offend, wound um, uh, a particular group, uh, I think we have to step back and say, look, why is this statue here? And, and um, what, you know, what, we should, what should we do about it calmly rather than because people are shouting in the street? The, the statue to Cecil Rhodes in Oxford on the high street is not on the facade of Oriel College to glorify colonialism. It's there because it's, it's expression of thanks to the man for having funded that building. Um, and, uh, you know, until people do attention to it, very few people, except I think Rhodes scholars even knew it was there. It's so high up. Uh, it's well, well out of most people's line of sight and so on. And um, uh, so it's, it's uh, and again, if you, if you, if you take roads down, where do you go next? I mean, there are two kings underneath, uh, you know, 20th century, 19th and 20th century kings under the statue of Rhodes on the facade who certainly believed in imperialism and the glory of the British Empire. Um, I suppose they should be taken down too. I think the, 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 there, there, there's, um, there's a, a chain reaction logically which would have to set in if we were to if we were to convince ourselves that we are being rational in uh, dealing with a particular uh, representation of an historical figure, I, I was invited to submit uh, views to the Independent Commission of Inquiry at Oriel College that looked into what to do with that statue and also a plaque to roads on a nearby street. And I suggested that whatever their decision was, it had to be framed in a way which made universal sense, according to a set of principles that everybody would understand and could be applied in other cases, because this was much, not, this wasn't just a local matter. It was a, a good example of how to deal with controversial figures more generally. Now, the outcome there, of course, has disappointed some people, but, and it was a bit of a muddle, um, but, um, uh, but I, you know, but I, but I think at least it was thoughtfully prepared as decisions go, and the body that considered it was highly representative, uh, 
of uh, the, the range of views that people normally will have about, you know, difficult subjects. Well, Robert, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating topic and whether people believe in having a coronation park like in Delhi where all the huge crumbling statues from the British Raj were moved and families actually visit the park making a day of it or the statue grave graveyard in Budapest where all the old communist statues were placed or maybe just pull them all down and be done with it or perhaps <laughs> leave them where they are no matter what your opinion Robert's book, Cecil Rhodes and Other Statues, is worth the read and is available now through Amazon and all good bookstores. Um, Robert, you're obviously a, a man who rarely sits still. So what are you working on now? Well, I'm actually um, lying fallow for a while, enjoying other people's books rather than feeling obliged to read books about a subject I'm working on at the moment. So I'm, I'm actually I'm toying with a few ideas, none of which is really in much a shape to, to the share at the moment, but it's more still likely to be an international or historical subject. Uh, Robert Calderisi, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining me on Conversations with Peter Wood. Thank you, Peter. I've enjoyed the conversation. Bye. Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.